All right, well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Let's try that again. Good morning. All right, as Josh said, my name is Jordan. Usually you see me up here holding a guitar or singing. I'm one of the worship leaders here, a longtime community group leader. And every now and then I get the pleasure of opening up the word, preaching and teaching, something I'm very passionate and exciting about. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12. Before we get there, I'll just need to set a few things up for us. So we're in the middle of our summer series called Finally Alive. And we're looking at different spiritual disciplines that will help us grow closer to God. Think of them this way, and I love thinking of them this way. They're like your God-given weights in the gym. They'll help us train ourselves to be more Christ-like. And our desire is that these disciplines would open up your heart to allow God in the midst of any darkness, struggle, pain, frustrations, habits that are not godly to enter in and replace those things with the great joy he has set before you. And this morning, appropriately enough, we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of worship. See, every single person in the world, believers in Jesus or not, are worshipers of something, right? We all worship something. It's what we were designed to do. But whether that be money, relationships, other people's opinions, food, sex, music, movies, or God himself, we all worship something. But the big distinction I want to point out this morning is that, yes, truly everyone worships, but not everyone worships truly. And though there are those of us in here who say we are worshipers of Jesus, I think if we were honest, we don't always do a great job of that all the time. See, worship is what we were designed for. It's what we were meant to be doing. And ultimately, it's what's going to lead us into an increase of joy in our lives. That's what we're all after, right? Worship is so essential in our relationship with God that the Bible actually closes out with a command to do so. In the last chapter of the Bible, in Revelations 22, we, we read this. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And, and I think any of us being in the situation that John is in here would be prone to do the same thing, right? An angel of the Lord comes before us. We'd all probably fall on our faces and start worshiping that angel. But notice what the angel says in response. He says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of the brethren and the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book, but rather worship God. So, so in other words, don't worship angels, worship God. Don't worship the things of this earth, worship God. Don't neglect or despise God, worship God. This is the last chapter of the Bible. It's really the last command on our lives that we worship God. It's such an imperative discipline in our lives. And I want us to guard ourselves and guard our hearts just for a moment, because I know when I say the word worship, especially coming from myself, the bulk of us are immediately thinking about the songs we sing on Sunday, right? And while music is absolutely an aspect of worship and one that will hit at length in a little bit here, it's only a portion of what it means to worship God. See, the spiritual discipline of worship, it's, it's really a huge topic. 
As I was preparing for this, I realized we could easily do a three-month series on this, but for time's sake, I'm just going to break it down into two points, two things I think the Lord wants us to hear. First, what does it look like to worship truly? And then we're going to have a bit of a family discussion. What does it look like to worship truly corporately as the Shore Church? So that's where we're heading today. Let me read Romans 12, 1 and 2. I'll pray and we'll get after it. So Romans 12 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So let's pray. So Heavenly Father, we thank you just for a beautiful day. And we thank you just for your blood that was spilled for us. And as we just sang about that, you remove all of our transgressions. We thank you so much for that. May your finished work on the cross just be our fuel for our worship. I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to each of us in ways that will convict, but help us just lead us into greater joy. I pray that you would give us the tools that we need to apply the spiritual discipline of worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here's the reality of the world we live in. And tell me if I'm wrong, but the world says you can be, you can do whatever you want to do. You can feel empowered to do whatever makes you happy. You can identify with whatever identity that you want. Whatever's going to bring you the most success, bring you the most happiness, do that. You're the star. You're number one. Like, don't you see this everywhere you look with advertising? Or even if you're standing in line at the grocery store, all of the magazine covers are like five ways to a better you. You know, like three ways to your best summer body now. Four ways to a happier life. And this is the tension that we're caught up in in our culture because Paul is saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice as worship But the world is saying, no, do this and this and this to be happy. And even though we tend to believe this more often than I think we'd like to admit, I think deep down we know that the things of the earth aren't the point and they won't truly make us happy. But our world trains us to live this way. That's culture's message to us. Worship your life. Do what makes you happy. And look, I'm not trying to say that happy is bad. I like happy. It makes me happy. And I'm not saying there's anything intrinsically wrong with the things I pointed out, you know, like money, relationships, comfort, sex. But they were just never designed to be the objects of our worship. And when we make them that, they will always disappoint you, always leave you wanting more, they'll always leave you frustrated because you were created to worship something so much more. And the things of this earth may make you happy for a little bit, but they won't last. C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays, it'll be on the screen behind me, he says this. He says, most people, if they had really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we grasped at. 
in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may have been a very interesting job, but something, the thing we thought would be at the center of it all, has evaded us. See, if our mantra is that of the world's, where we worship our own life and the things in it, we'll constantly be left discontent, dissatisfied, frustrated, overwhelmed. And if I can borrow from one commentator, what's missing at the center from the world's beatitudes is Jesus Christ. So, so the world says, hey, blessed are the rich, for they can get whatever they want. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says, blessed are the famous and the cool and the popular, because everyone's going to envy their life. But Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the question we have to ask then today is how do we live a gospel-centered life of worship? How do we practice this discipline of worship? Because as we said, the world's constantly telling us, you're number one, worship yourself, worship your own life, whatever makes you happy, go and do that. But at the same time, the gospel's saying, no, there's something better for you to worship, something worth worshiping. And that brings us back into the book of Romans. And before we dive deeper into Romans 12, I'm going to give you the quickest overview of Romans 1 to 11 ever right now first, just to set things up. Really, the first 11 chapters of Romans are Paul laying out, hey, here's who God is. Here's what Jesus has accomplished. Here's where you fit in. Then beginning in chapter 12, there's a bit of a shift that occurs where Paul says, basically, in light of everything that I just said, I now want you to live your life from this reality. So it's a shift from teaching and doctrine into application and practice. So Paul's saying, in light of everything I said up until now, and I have a few highlights here for you, in light of everything he said, Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, for if we have been united with him a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Famously in Romans 8, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so in response to all of that amazing truth, Paul says this in Romans 12, 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's essentially saying, hey, therefore, out of everything I taught you in the first 11 chapters, I appeal to you, Give yourselves wholly to God. Don't be shaped by the world around you. Don't let this world tell you what to think about yourself or about others. But you have been crucified with Christ. You've gone from death to life. 
And really the first two verses of chapter 12 are an invitation for us to live fully in the freedom of Jesus Christ by way of life surrender and life sacrifice to God. Paul is saying that true gospel-centered worship is an all-of-life worship offered to God as a sacrifice. It's a response with our lives to what Jesus has done for us on the cross in all of life worship. And I think it's important that we really get that because again, when we hear the word worship, we think that's coming to church on Sunday, singing a few songs, hearing a sermon, consuming a few things and getting out of here. That's what we're prone to think about worship. But that can't be it. That's an hour on Sunday. And yes, those are our expressions of our worship, but it's not the full extent of it. Paul says that our gospel-centered worship is an everyday living sacrifice that we offer our entire lives to God. So we place our sleeping, our eating, our work, our play, our family, our friends, we place our entire life before God with open hands and say, God, here's my life. Do with it as you please. That's worship. So it's not just, hey, I'm going to church on Sunday to worship God. Yes, that's part of it. But it's also, I'm going to work on Monday to worship God. I'm going to go visit family and friends to worship God. I'm going to go love my neighbor even though it's hard to worship God. I'm going to go hike to worship God. I'm going to go to the beach to worship God. See, gospel-centered worship is sacrificing our entire bodies, our entire lives as an offering because of what Jesus has done for us. So what then does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? Because it sounds kind of weird, right? It sounds like some kind of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom death ritual. It's not that. It doesn't mean that you climb up on, your, on like a homemade altar and offer your body to God. The good thing is that Paul doesn't leave us hanging in, in Romans 12. He says that our sacrifice is to be two things. It's to be living and it's to be holy. So our sacrifice is to be living. It's not a dead sacrifice. And, and biblically speaking, in the context of this text, when the readers of Romans would have read sacrifice, they would have thought of the act of a worshiper bringing a sacrifice to a priest, the priest taking that sacrifice up to an altar, killing it, pouring out its blood, and then burning it. So sacrifices would have always been killed in the context of this text. It was always by way of death to remind everyone that the wages of sin is death and salvation for sinners is through substitution. But that's not what Paul's referring to here. He's not saying we present our bodies to God as some sort of atoning sacrifice because that sacrifice was made once and for all by Jesus on the cross. And if you're in here today and you're just exploring Christianity or church is new to you, I think this is even a great reminder to all of us, but that's what we believe. And that's really the fuel of our worship, that our faith doesn't require us to do anything to gain right standing and forgiveness from our sins because Jesus Christ did that for us already out of an overflow of love on the cross. That's the fuel as to why we worship. Jesus went to the cross in our place, absorbed the wrath of God. He sacrificed his life in place of ours so that we would be free of all of our sin all of our shame, any false identities we put on ourselves, his death paid for it all. Our sacrifice is not like that in any way, shape, or form. 
but rather Paul's saying that our sacrifice is, is kind of like what he says over in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that we offer our lives to God so we might no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and was raised to life. And this is the daily call on my life and on your life. That as disciples, we have been made alive in Jesus Christ and our role now is to live for the glory of God in everything we do. It's a living sacrifice. That's our spiritual daily worship. And second, Paul says that our sacrifice is to be holy. He says our offerings to God of our lives should involve being set apart from the world around us. And if I was honest with you here, not that I haven't been so far, <laughs> all too often, I find that my life is not set apart enough from the world. It's just not. Like, I think the world has cool things. I like the, the toys and the trinkets. And, and I think if we were all honest, you know, just cards on the table, I think we'd all say the same things about our life. But Paul says we're called to live holy and set apart lives. He talks about more what this looks like earlier in, in Romans 6. When he talks about what holy living is, he says that with our hands, with our eyes, with our feet, and with our mouth, they're all to be holy and we're to give our body to righteousness and not to sin. The countercultural living for the life of the disciple looks like this because the world says happiness and success is doing whatever you want, anything that brings you the most pleasure and satisfaction. But Paul says, no, life in Christ calls us to live set apart lives that look different and have different standards than the world has to offer. Holiness is saying, God, I trust you. I'm going after you here. Even if that means I lose my job or some friends or some relationships or my status, I'm chasing after you. Holy living looks more like faithfulness to the end than it does about making a name for yourself in this world. See, sacrificial holiness might mean that you spend more of your money on other people than you do yourself. Holy living in Jesus might mean you stick it out in your neighborhood or your job because you know that God has placed you there for a reason to make disciples. Even if you'd rather go somewhere cheaper or go somewhere you can make more money. Holiness is not just attending church on Sundays, you know, memorizing some scripture, some songs, and calling it a day. That can't be it. That's only an hour. Holy sacrificial living means our attitude in all of life is God-centered. So it means our attitude towards sin is God-centered holiness. So when we sin, we know that it grieves the heart of God and the sign of a true, holy, mature believer is that in those moments of sin, we don't run and hide from God, but we recognize what he's done for us on the cross and we run full speed to him. Holy obedience is really facing towards God and saying, God, I'm with you. I don't know what it's going to look like, I'm with you. It's going to be risky. I'm with you. I want to live like you lived, Jesus. I want to love like you loved. Even if it doesn't make sense to the world or even myself, I'm going to stumble. I'm going to fall. But I'm so grateful that you have not required me to live a perfect life. 
but you've asked me to be holy and I want to be holy just as you are. So I'm coming after you, Jesus. That's what makes our sacrifice holy. A body isn't holy because of what it looks like or what shape it's in, but because of what it does in obedience. The spiritual discipline of worship is practiced by presenting your body as a living sacrifice. All right, secondly this morning, so a bit of a, a, bit of a family chat here. So how do we worship then truly, corporately, as the shore church? What does that look like? And again, while, while worship isn't just the songs we sing here on Sunday, though it's definitely an important aspect of it and one I think we should talk about and, let, and let's chat about it now. Like, did you know that singing is mentioned over 400 times in the Bible? Over 400. There's something profoundly powerful across all cultures, all generations, about music. Music does something both physically and emotionally and spiritually to human beings all over the world in all stages of life. I also think you'll see singing comfort the people of God. And, and maybe some of you have experienced this. I know, I know I have. It's not uncommon for older men or older women who are struggling with Alzheimer's or dementia to hear an old hymn or a song and return with clarity for a few moments. You'll have a man or a woman who can no longer recognize their children or don't even really know where they are and is a diminished version of what they once were. They'll hear something like Amazing Grace and they'll enter back in and they'll sing words and they'll be present for a moment that they weren't before the hymn. And I know this is to be true. I know my late grandmother fought Alzheimer's till the day she died and, and her husband, my grandpa, used to visit her every day and hold her hand and and sing hymns to her, and, and suddenly she was back, if even for a few moments. It's power unleashed, and it's what singing does. As one commentator says, throughout scripture, we see that there is spiritual power unleashed when the people of God sing. Power to remember and be comforted, power to be integrated in heart and mind, and power over demonic oppression. So God is serious about music and he's serious about us singing as a church. He's gifted his people with music for their good and his joy. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, uh, we'll have it on the screen, in Zephaniah 3.17, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is, like, I can't even picture this. Right now, God is in the heavens, so pleased and so loving us so much that he's singing over us. So God cares about music. And he cares about our worship through music. Do you know that 50 of those 400 mentions of singing are actually commands for us to sing. Isn't that intriguing? Like, doesn't that make you wonder a little bit? Like, why? It's not like God is having a rough time up there and he's sad and he needs someone to sing him a song to cheer him up. That's not the God of the Bible. But maybe the spiritual discipline of worship through song, maybe it has a powerful purpose for us. See, what singing is meant to do is sync up our heads with our hearts 
And, and I'm not talking about trying to force or create an emotional experience, though worship can absolutely be emotional. What we're after is a heart moved by what is true, moving us out of what we know to be true into of an, an experience of that truth. C.S. Lewis says praise is this. He says praise is understanding what is true and then expressing it in praise. Well, how do we express it then? It's through song. Let me show you this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from Colossians 3. We were in this a few weeks ago in our Colossians series. You can go ahead and put that on the screen. Colossians 3, starting in verse 16, says this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I love that. Let it dwell in you. So let's steep together in the word. How many of you have had the experience where you've read the Bible in the morning and by lunchtime, or not even lunchtime, by later that morning, you forgot what you read, right? All of us, right? What Paul's saying here is, no, don't just read it like you're reading a blog or a newspaper. Let it dwell in you richly. Think about it. Meditate upon it. Apply it. Let it dwell in you. And he goes on, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And then what does he say? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be men and women who have steeped in the word of Christ so that it's in you. You don't just know it, it's in you, it's a part of you. And then teach and admonish and encourage and then with thankful hearts, Sing. Sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And let me try to break some of this down, some things that I think are important for how we practice this discipline here at the Shore Church. First off, our lyrics and our songs really matter. Gordon Fee, author and uh, former Regent College professor, he says this, he says, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. And this is something we as worship leaders here take very seriously. Why? You're very unlikely going to sing my sermon later this week. You're not going to be in your car and be like, good morning, I'm Jordan, we respond in four ways. Like, you're not going to do that. But it's music that has this power. You will more than likely sing a hook or a chorus from one of the songs we sing. And there's a couple things I want to talk about when I talk about lyrics. First, there needs to be some room for some creative and symbolic freedom. Like, if you read the Psalms, David says things like, as the deer pants for the water, oh, my soul pants for you. Like, no one's getting mad at David in that and being like, come on, you can't, you can't sing that. You're not a deer. What are you talking about? So there has to be some room for some poetic freedom. And I know amongst us, that's something we may disagree with on just how much of this is okay, and that's all right. We just need to be gracious to each other in that. But there's another way we can err that I think is far more important. And that's the air of not caring at all what the words are and believing that just because it's a good melody or it's a good song or it's a popular song, that the words don't matter. We can't be people that say, hey, this song's so good, it's so popular, it's number one on iTunes, it's by this band, everyone loves it. You shouldn't care so much about those lyrics. No, our lyrics matter. 
What God is after is men and women who sing passionately because of what is true. And out of that, they express that in song for the good of their own souls and the good of the corporate gathering. And if I can give you a bit of a peek behind the curtain of how we choose songs here, and it's not a secret. You can come and ask us anytime. We err strongly on the side of God-centered, biblically-centered songs. We want to be constantly singing truth from the Bible because of what we just read in Colossians, that we should let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. See, we believe it's beneficial to the people of God to walk out of here and get an earworm of a great biblical lyric, like as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. We strongly believe that biblically thick lyrics help us practice the spiritual discipline of worship. And so you won't come here on a Sunday where you won't sing about thick gospel truths. There'll always be a song where you're confessing your sin. There'll always be a song where we get assurance of pardon from God. We'll always sing petition where we'll ask God for further grace on our lives. We'll always sing in adoration to God's holiness. We so desperately believe that the discipline of worshiping God through Bible-centered songs are going to empower you to grow closer in your relationship with him. And they'll empower you to find hope in the midst of darkness, feel freedom from whatever sin or shame you're carrying around. So our lyrics matter in the practice of the spiritual discipline of worship. And maybe this is true in your life, but I've chatted with many people, and this is true in mine, where people have come to know God in powerful ways because of the songs that they sing. Like, yes, they heard some good teaching or some good sermons, but I've heard tons of people say it was really the lyrics of the songs that compelled me towards God and drew me towards him. Warren Wearsby, a pastor um, in the 1900s, says, said, I convi- I'm convinced that congregations learn more theology, good and bad, from the songs they sing than from the sermons they hear. Now, I can't say I entirely agree with this, but, but with what we know about music and its ability to stick in our minds, I see what he's getting at. What's our mission statement here? It's to make Jesus known. We're absolutely a mission-focused church wanting to spread the name of Jesus. That's, that's why we do things like gather outside shipyards. And by singing songs that present biblical truths, we allow those hearing to marinate under God's great truth. And whether they know it or not, they're practicing the spiritual discipline of worshiping God. If we look back to Colossians 3, what does Paul say? He says, it's the word of Christ. It's the word about Christ. It's the word of the gospel, not musical experiences or emotional highs that dwell in us richly as we sing. And there's certainly a place for expressing our feelings or our subjective responses to God in song, but the greater portion of our lyrics should be the objective objective truths we're responding to, which is God's word, God's character, his works, especially his work of sending his son to die on the cross. There's a question I ask myself and wrestle with a lot as I as I lead worship and as I kind of build out sets for Sundays. And that's, if the teaching in our church was limited to the songs that we sing, how well would we be taught? 
how well would we know God? We should make it our aim to not only preach the whole counsel of God, but to sing it as well. And look, I know that music in church is a highly debated, highly discussed topic. As I was preparing for this, I was reading about the worship wars, I think in the 70s and 80s. Anyone live through those? I think it was like in California where like hundreds of churches just full out split over styles of music. They just couldn't get on the same page. And, and I get it, like music's a big topic. We all drove to church today probably with something different on the radio, right? Like maybe we got like some soft rock, some rock, some country, some gangster rap, like I don't know. <laughs> a little bit of everything. We all like different types of music. And we do our absolute best here to cater to as many different musical styles as possible. And I know that we've all had different mountaintop worship experiences. You know, like the, that, that buzz that you get when you worship God. But, but if I can bring this all back to Romans 12, can we just present ourselves as living sacrifices? Maybe the discipline of worship and things like the style of worship and, and the songs we sing, maybe it's not necessarily about us or our preferences. Maybe it's about giving God glory for what he's done. Because when we make it all about him, that's what we're going to get, him. The truth is, when we gather together corporately, like we're doing right now, God isn't just here, but he's active. He's doing stuff. So when we read the word of God, when we sing the word of God, when we confess our sins together, when we cry out and plead to God, he's at work shaping us, growing us, moving us. And hey, you may not always feel that. You know, like that feeling you get, like if it's like Thursday night at youth camp or if it's like that worship night buzz that you get where you just feel the Holy Spirit vibrating in your souls. And let me just say, you may not always get those feels on a Sunday morning, but don't be mistaken, God is still moving. He's still growing you. He still hears you. He still forgives you. So whether we feel it or not is not the point. The spiritual discipline of worship is about praising God for what he has done for us. And honestly, I think, I've seen this in my life. God does some of the most powerful things in our lives in those seasons where it feels like he's not doing anything. Then all of a sudden you wake up and you see just how much he's growing you. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground and, and cover it up with dirt. You don't see anything happening underneath the dirt, but that doesn't mean that something's not happening. So we come and we sing. Here's what I've realized over my years of leading worship and being a part of worship teams and gathering corporately and singing at church. I really don't have anything to offer him. Except for the fact that I know because of what Jesus did for me, when God looks at me, he doesn't see any of my sin. He doesn't see any of my shame, my pride, my wickedness. He sees me as holy and blameless before him. And maybe some mornings I'll come in here and I'll be leading or I'll be singing with you guys and, and I'll feel the spirit moving in me. 
but, but maybe I won't feel it some mornings. But I have full confidence that he's moving me closer to Jesus, whether I feel it or not. That's the power of worshiping corporately. That's what those who truly understand the gospel and want more of him will do. And we can be confident, as Philippians 1 says, that he who began a good work in you will surely complete it in Jesus. Jesus is where it stems from. God active worship in the corporate gathering leads to Christ-likeness, which is what we're all after. I'm going to read Psalm 95 as, as we begin to, to wrap this all together. Psalm 95, verse 1 and 2 says this. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Sure, church, can we do this? Like, can we be a body that hears these 50 commands to sing? Can we take those seriously and put them into practice? Not in some kind of way to get on God's good side or earn any of his favor. That's not what these spiritual disciplines are about. But rather because worship and worshiping corporately through song does powerful things in the lives of believers. And look, I know the kind of culture and atmosphere we live in, and I don't really get it where it's okay and also like kind of cool to show up late for things. But unless you're gathering corporately somewhere else throughout the week, I know I'm not, we really only have six opportunities a week, six songs a week for us to be a part of this powerful discipline of worshiping God together. And I would love it if we were a church. When 10 o'clock rolls around, when the band walks out of there, there's not just like five people in here. You know, 10 o'clock rolls around, we're in the lobby. It's 10 o'clock, I gotta run in there because I get the opportunity to be a part of something biblically, biblical, beautiful, something holy, and something powerful. And I know I don't have kids, so I don't know what it's like getting out of the house in the morning, but maybe that just means sacrificing a little bit, getting up a little bit earlier. Maybe it means just, hey, like, hey, great, great chatting with you. I want to run in there. Let's chat after the service. Can we do this together? And look, like I said, this is a huge topic, and I feel like I've barely scratched the surface in our time. But if you really, if you really get in here and, and start reading this thing, you'll see that powerful, powerful things happen in the lives of believers when they come together and sing. Like there's healing, there's comfort, there's assurance, there's forgiveness, and there's praise for the one who gave it all for us. And I know sometimes singing around a bunch of people, a bunch of strangers is the last thing we want to do. And I'm not saying to come here and pretend that everything's okay if it's not okay. If you're in the middle of a mess, then come as you are. That's the invitation from Jesus. Come as you are. But just know that there's freedom in this place as you worship, wherever you are. Like if you're singing a song that resonates with you in a season of your life and you want to sing louder, lift up your hands and even dance a little bit, then get after it. But, but if you're struggling, you're exhausted, you're in the middle of a storm, but hey, you know the Lord is good, the Lord is faithful, and you just want to sit and sing quietly, then by all means go for it. 
the best way that we can worship is honestly. God knows your heart. And what our heart needs to become more like him is to present ourselves as living sacrifices so we might get more of him. That's our spiritual worship. We'll need his help. Will you stand as we respond? We're going to respond in, in just a moment. Um, before we do, I'm just going to, I'm going to read a quote from John Piper to kind of tie our, our time together here. John Piper says this about worship. He says, The inner essence of worship is to know God truly and then respond from the heart to that knowledge by valuing God, treasuring God, prizing God, enjoying God, being satisfied with God above all earthly things. And then that deep, restful, joyful satisfaction in God overflows in demonstrable acts of praise from the lips and demonstrable acts of love in serving others for the sake of Christ. And look, whether we like it or not, as soon as we walk out of this place, the world is going to be training us to practice its disciplines. We need to combat those with God's. And I wonder, what would it look like if we found room for these spiritual disciplines in our lives? And maybe that might mean sacrificing some things, like trimming off some of the excess, things that aren't leading us closer to Christ, and replacing those with the spiritual disciplines we're chatting about. Let me pray. Jesus, we, we thank you that you're not just here, but you're active. You're moving, Holy Spirit. And right now, I just pray that you would stir up your affection in the hearts of us for you. That your beauty, your finished work, your love would just weigh heavy on our hearts and we would just be overwhelmed with joy with how great you are. And I pray that our response to that would just be to give you praise through song this morning. But I pray it won't stop there. I pray our response to that would be to go into the world in all aspects of our life, continue to worship you by presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Jesus, we love you, but we need your help. The things of this world draw our attention far too often. We need your help to set our eyes upon you, God. So would you just fill us up with more of you? Fill us up with more of you. Be our fuel, be our everything. We give this morning and we give our lives to you in Jesus' name.